The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work in the editorial team here at the IAI. And my name's Charlie and I'm a senior producer here at the IAI. And today we've got Getting Everything, Losing Everything, featuring transhumanist Anders Sandberg, philosophy professor Massimo Piglucci, and senior lecturer in philosophy Masbita Chirimuta. And this debate took place in 2002 at How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay and Why, which is the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Charlie, tell us a bit more about this debate. This debate confronts virtual reality and questions whether our future lives will live as much in the digital world as they will in the physical world. Interesting. Is there anything specific that you like about this debate? Well, there is a very interesting uh, head-to-head confrontation between Massimo Pigliucci and Anders Sandberg about halfway through, where they talk about the work and debate the work of David Chalmers, and whether David Chalmers was right to think that virtual reality is literally the same as normal reality. And in the end, it comes down to a question of terminology, but interesting nonetheless. Remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, let's hand over to our host for this debate, Maria Belasca. So, living a life of luxury, travel to the far ends of the earth, dial up any experience you can imagine. According to its proponents, a new reality is on the way. They claim our future lives will take place as much in the digital world as in the physical world, with the potential to give everyone access to experiences currently only available to the few. But critics say this is a nightmare, not a utopia. Instead of real relationships, we'll have virtual ones. Instead of nature, we will have a simulation. Should we ignore the hyperbole and recognize it as a science fiction fantasy? that is simply a marketing device to motivate staff and shareholders? Or is the digital virtual world an inevitable future that we urgently need to prepare for now? Can we harness its potential or is it a trap that threatens to steal real life? To start the debate, I'd like each speaker to offer a brief presentation of their thoughts. But first, let me present our speakers. Anders Sandberg is a researcher, popular science debater, transhumanist and author of Superhuman, Exploring Human Enhancement from 600 BCE to 2050. Massimo Pirucci 
is a philosophy professor at the City College of New York and former co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast. His research interests include the philosophy of science and the philosophy of biology. And Masvita Tsirimuta is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. She's a self-described techno-pessimist and anti-transhumanist. Her current research interests include philosophy of perception, philosophy of neuroscience, and history of the mind-brain sciences. So, um, starting with a short description, I'd like to hear your thoughts on is the metaverse an inevitable future or is it a sci-fi fantasy and marketing device? And I'd like to start with you, Anders. Uh, and my answer is, of course, yes. Uh, so before I ended up in the philosophy department, I was a computer scientist. And instead of doing the neural network research I was supposed to be doing in the 90s, I was actually doing a fair bit of virtual reality. Back when you needed a mainframe silicon graphics computer that was pretty expensive and you had a really bulky headsets and nothing really worked and it was extremely jerky and we were of course imagining we were creating the future. Because that first peak of thinking about virtual reality in the 90s, there was an explosion of visions that very much is similar to today. This is going to change everything. The future is virtual. You had movies like Lawnmower Man that uh, was kind of blowing up this idea. And that was partially because of fiction a bit earlier. The cyberpunk fiction created the concept of virtual reality, including Neil Stevenson's amazing novel Snow Crash where he describes a splintered future where there is uh, something called the metaverse that a lot of people log into and uh, is a really powerful force in this story. This is where you meet. This is where you interact. That novel had a device called Earth, which was run by the privatized CIA uh, and allows you to zoom in on any place on Earth and get information. That inspired Google Earth. A lot of work on virtual reality got inspired by this very well-informed novel, which of course points out that whoever owns the platform, the metaverse, has tremendous amount of power. Now, it missed the fact that controlling the discourse on the platform is how you get the real power. He was kind of more imagining that the power came from the physical platform. But it made a good point, and it's kind of hilarious that uh, Meta now uh, talks about the metaverse because it's based on a novel criticizing big corporations, which shows that nobody ever learns anything. And to conclude, when I tried out a modern virtual reality a while ago, whoa, it's so smooth and it runs on a mere good gaming computer rather than a mainframe computer. But we're still not very good at making it look organic because modeling is hard. Creating procedural texture is hard. We still do really don't know what to do with it yet just like we didn't know what to do with it in the 90s. So I think we're totally going to be tinkering with this and trying to find that killer application that makes this worthwhile. But it's going to take time and then nobody really knows where it's going. But certainly people are going to try to control that platform. Great, thank you. Massimo? Uh, beware of anybody who tells you that they're going to change everything because then they're going to do it and you're not going to have a voice in it. So one of the people that is telling you this kind of stuff is Nick Clegg, who is president of global affairs at Meta. And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes that might stimulate discussion later on from an article that he just published last week. He says, companies like Meta have a lot of work to do both to build the credibility of the metaverse as an idea 
and to demonstrate to people that we are committed to building it a responsible way. It means being open and transparent about the work we're doing and the choices and trade-offs inherent in it. It means drawing on existing work, on work to protect marginalized communities online and listening to human and civil rights, privacy and disabilities experts as systems and processes are developed to keep people safe. Sounds to me like somebody's on the defensive here. You know, you keep telling you that, oh, don't worry, this time we're gonna get it right. Um, the last time that they got it wrong was last year. So it's not exactly a great track record. Um, he goes on and says that technology isn't good or bad in and of itself. I don't think so, my friend. Technology is built in a certain way. And this notion that technology is actually neutral, that it's all up to us, how do we use it or not, is actually dangerous. Yeah, there are some technologies that are meant to do certain things rather than others. For instance, at home, I have a nice hammer. It's meant to hammer stuff into the wall. I could also use it to crush somebody's skull, and that would definitely be a bad use of that technology. It's not meant to do that sort of stuff. The question is, what is, meant, what is this stuff meant to do? And I suspect that, that it's closer to the crush sculling thing than to the uh, hanging nails on the wall. So if you believe all of that, you know, he goes on and says uh, one more quote, it needs to be developed at the platform openly with a spirit of cooperation between the private sector, lawmakers, civil society, academia, and the people who will use these technologies. This effort must be undertaken in the best interests of people and society, not just technology companies. If you believe that, I have a nice bridge in Brooklyn that I can sell you for real. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Massimo. Um, Asmita, can I hear your thoughts about this? Yeah. So, uh, as you said, I tend to be a techno-pessimist. Uh, but really what I wanted to talk about for my pitch today was VR as a mirror to where we are anyway without VR. Because I really think the metaverse is an expression of some existing civilizational trends that we don't pay enough attention to. So really, it's useful to think about VR to really think about where we're at anyway. So a really obvious point about virtual reality is that there's a lack of connection between sensory experiences and bodily consequences. So you can imagine in a VR, you can be in the simulation where you're running along a cliff edge or you're in a shootout and you could be really terrified um, and you've got all the visual and auditory sensations of these experiences, but there's no actual bodily threat. Um, and philosophers like to imagine, you know, future VR where not just sound and, um, and vision and touch are simulated, but all of the five senses, including, you know, sound and um, taste and smell. So you can imagine eating virtual food. So you could have a lobster thermid or some really luxurious food that you wouldn't be able to afford in real life, but it would be completely without nourishment. To actually, you know, get food to survive, you'd have to leave the metaverse and um, take real food, or you'd have to be in the metaverse with some feeding tube wired up to you. But there's this disconnect between the sensory experiences and the actual consequences for your body. So the lobster thermidor in this VR, it won't nourish you, but it also can't give you food poisoning, right? So <laughs> good and bad <laughs> with this. But why do I think that's the crystallization of um, existing trends? Because this seems like a really like, like a sci-fi scenario. But if you think about plenty of our technologies that we have today already that we're completely used to, 
they're already doing that thing of like breaking the connection between the sensory experiences we're getting and the body. So if you think about widespread availability of contraception, what that did is break the automatic con connection between sex and the possibility of pregnancy that was there, you know, before this technology was widely available. Um, if you think about food handling technologies that you have today, it kind of breaks the connection between needing to really taste your food to check that it's safe to eat and just, you know, food as this nice sensory experience. Um, because you just, for any food that you buy in a supermarket within its best before date, you assume that it's not going to give you food poisoning. You don't really need to use your senses to check the bodily consequences of what's going on. Um, so I think we should be aware of, you know, a conception of technology. It's useful to think about technology in general as things that, you know, create a medium or a means between your goals as a human being and some like um, some something in nature that you're directed to. Think of social media, it's a technological platform in between you and the people that you want to interact with. So technologies in general have this mediating characteristic and the metaverse is like this extreme version of that, just creating this big sort of sensory buffer around us. But without connection to the you know actual forces in nature that keep us alive etc keep us alive but would also be threatening Great. to us thank you um i will i will you'll get the mm -hmm. chance to say more about that yeah. actually um but i'd like to um start with our first theme now and like think about um the philosophical question around this debate because we're talking about reality and virtual reality but what what is the difference between the two how can we even distinguish between reality and virtual reality mm -hmm. and i'd like actually to start with humans okay. Rita. yeah so so thinking about this this is um it connects with what i was saying before because um you know what is reality that's a huge philosophical question one handy way of thinking about reality that's um makes sense in this context not the only way but is reality is whatever pushes back against your agency. So if you think about a brick wall, imagine that's a brick wall, not just a flimsy fab fabric wall. There's a real brick wall. I wouldn't be able to just walk through it if I wanted to. If it was a hallucinated brick wall, I could just walk through it. So reality is gonna you know, confront me with its own agency pushing back. So I think what's really interesting about the metaverse, I don't think it's, you know, it is a re you, we can argue that it's a reality because it's running in real computers and there's real you know digital objects there. But what's distinctive about it as a reality is that there isn't non-human agency in the fabric of it. So the other agents that will be in the metaverse will be other human beings, and the digital objects will be the creations of algorithms programmed by human beings. The algorithms could have emergent properties which would sort of be unpredictable by the human programmers. But what will be missing there is um, agency from non-human actors such as animals, microbes, a tree that might fall, fall on you, a lightning strike that, mm -hmm. might, that might hit you. So it's a very different kind of reality in that sense. It's sort of closing off the non-human agency, which we might think that the already this process of technological mediation has already built a big wall around us from the rest of um, nature. Yeah. And this, what do you think about that? Do you think that resistance and unpredictability are 
uh, good ways to define reality versus virtual reality? I'm not certain they would be good ways of defining it, but I think they're an important component. So I'm rather fond of David Chalmers' take mm -hmm. on virtual reality. Right. He's uh, been cornering the market of philosophy of yeah. virtual reality so, ever since he wrote about Matrix uh, and uh, yeah. philosophy. And he makes this argument that we should actually treat virtual worlds as real in the mm -hmm. sense that sure. virtual objects have causal powers. Mm -hmm. If I use my virtual sword on the virtual dragon, uh, I might be able to kill it. The virtual dragon might threaten my virtual avatar. There are interactions going on in this little environment. It's in some sense a closed system where cause and effect works according to their own little rules. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. And uh, as he points out, this means that experiences in there matter. But, but the interesting part is, of course, it's this immersive interactive thing, but it's also run on a computer. Now, some realities are run on other realities. I'm kind of willing to have multi-layers and realities, and some realities are very simple, like a chess game. It's its own little self-contained reality that has this weird rule that entities from outside that reality move pieces around. And that virtual reality thing is running on a server somewhere, and if somebody pulls out the plug, that dragon and uh, my sword and my avatar disappears into nothingness. The interesting thing is that some of these systems are dependent on each other, and that gives a tremendous amount of power. Now, it's true that most virtual reality environments we make today are really boring because people have put everything in there. Mm -hmm. Even the trees are standard algorithmic clip art trees. Right. Now, I love artificial life. I actually like making environments that evolve on their own, where there is agency of some virtual form going on among the organisms that you get emergent properties that I didn't put in there, that entities learn and do things and I might discover hilarious and uh, interesting new things. We're not doing enough of that and I'm wishing that we will be doing more of that in the future because otherwise it's going to be pretty sterile. But it's kind of hard to design. When you make a virtual reality, uh, if you're not really good at programming, really great at creating artificial life and a great graphical designer, you're probably going to use that standard square clipboard table and the standard uh, t table textures. There is a risk that we're having a hard time creating the complexity that truly matters. And that, I think, is a real problem mm -hmm. and uh, we need to work against it. But it's partially a design problem rather than mm -hmm. a political problem or a technological problem. And from a philosophical standpoint, I think we need this pushback. I really love that point. Otherwise, uh, getting everything you want at the naive way means that you get bored. <laughs> so you mean there's a way to build the unpredictability into the technology and that yeah. that would be a way to like not be able to distinguish between the two. Massimo, thoughts? Are you optimistic like Anders or pessimistic uh, about that? I like to be realistic <laughs> about things. Uh, so David Chalmers, who, full disclosure, I think has actually been wrong on pretty much everything <laughs> in his life, 
um, just to put things out there, uh, has a very interesting uh, conception of causality. As you pointed out, the difference between my virtual dragon and a real dragon coming into this room is I, if I'm afraid of the virtual dragon, I can just turn off my computer and the virtual dragon is gone. The real one is going to eat me no matter what. Uh, and there's nothing I can, I can turn off. Philip K. Dick, who was a famously dystopian, brilliant science fiction uh, author, uh, said that reality is the thing that uh, doesn't go away when you stop believing in it, right? And that is the part of, part of the problem. One of, one of the points that was made uh, a few minutes ago was that there has to be consequences for, for something to be called a reality. If I eat the lobster and I don't get either the, the food poisoning or the nourishment, I'm not actually eating the lobster. I'm only engaging in something that looks from the outside as eating the lobster. So the part of the question here is, do we want that kind of non-reality? We can call it virtual reality, but I think it's a more appropriate uh, term is non-reality. Uh, in a sense, it's a fantasy world that we can build uh, to some extent to our own content, to much more of an extent to the contentment of Zuckerberg and Musk and people like that. Uh, and that's so the, the basic question is, do we want that kind of non-reality? Do we want, what kind of role do we want that non-reality to play? I mean, we all, I don't know about all, but many of us presumably have in fact interacted with virtual platforms like play a video game and it can be fun for a few minutes or for half an hour for an hour. If it gets to occupy 12 hours a day of my life, then I think it's uh, getting, getting to the point of uh, so psychological pathology and mm -hmm. not, not something that I want. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying that unpredictability cannot really be built into the technology because of the body not really taking part as like Anzvita was no, saying. No, I would say that unpredictability can definitely be built. It's credibility that cannot be built. Right. Uh, because ultimately, so long as I am in control of using the virtual reality interface, I know that I can get out of it at I any see. time with no consequence. And there's thoughts about that and then, yeah. Well, I think there are consequences because quite a lot of interaction we do in virtual reality might have persistent effects. Not just in the sense that uh, maybe when you turn on the computer, the dragon is uh, in the back there and programmed to be even more angry. But a lot of interaction we do in virtual reality are social. If I yell at somebody in an online forum, there are actual consequences. Now, you might say, yeah, but that's because we're real people behind uh, the scenes here who get really upset. But I think the virtual reality we call the university is just like that. The university is a place where people come together and role play this weird activity. We have our various names and ideas about what's going on. We happen to be very physically, but we're playing a kind of elaborate social game according to particular social rules. And many of them matter quite a lot for the rewards we get in terms of payment and or credibility or getting invited to wonderful festivals, things like that. So I do think that actually that the lobster thermidor is not real. That mostly matters if you care about the nourishment part. But if you say eating a lobster thermidor is a social occasion, I want to have a nice lobster with my friends, even though they're distributed over many continents, mm -hmm. that aspect of a nice dinner is relevant. Mm -hmm. I like how the lobster has become a part mm -hmm. of this. Do you have any yeah. final yeah. thoughts be before we move on to thing yeah, two? I mean, I mean, I think the point about it being a human human reality, so all of the other agency is from other people, I think you we can usefully connect that to what we see in social media 
already. So a particular kind of platforms, which bring lots and lots of people together with new forms of interactions, create their own dynamics, their own reality, which can, even though there's no physical contact, can have massive you know, psychological reper repercussions. Just think of the people that whose lives have been devastated after Twitter storms. So you can imagine lots of new, unpredictable versions of that within a metaverse. So I don't think the metaverse is going to be boring because it's too predictable, because there's going to be too many people in it, hmm. at, at least, you know, in the way that it's being conceived from the meta. Well, part. so, okay, yeah. having kind of explored the, the metaphysical and epistemological kind of questions around the reality versus virtual reality distinction, I'd like now to think about the, the nature of, of risk involved. Um, and we've kind of touched on this already. So, Anders, I have a sense that you'll have a, a rather optimistic kind of view about that. And the, the theme too, the question is, can we harness the metaverse's potential or is it a trap that threatens to steal real life? Yeah. Uh, so people have been worried about real life getting crowded out by virtual reality for a shockingly long time. Uh, actually, the term virtual rea reality seems to show up in, uh, early on as a description of theater. And indeed, uh, there was, uh, Rousseau was concerned about the imminent demise of civilization because of French theater in the late 1700s. Oh, because nice. those dramas up on stage, which these people made artificially so beautiful with mm -hmm. cosmetics, was so much better than real life. So yeah. we would all be just watching these dramas and not uh, reproduce and civilization would fall. Mm -hmm. He sounded exactly like somebody criticizing Instagram today. And this theme has been going on. He was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, French theater. It's just patient, but yeah. you know. Now, yeah. the interesting part here is that there is this threat many perceive that getting that lovely ideal world, we're going to be lost in it, either as the lotus eaters of Greek mythology or the more modern ideas about wireheading, why not stimulate the pleasure center straight away. And I think it's a concern. Controlling our motivation is hard and there might be real pitfalls here. At the same time, actually trying to use these systems, most people don't fall into them that way. Uh, I think the systems that are most pernicious are the ones that become a, a part of our everyday life. But instead of taking uh, over our lives, so we spend 24 hours a day plugged into the computer game, we're watching Twitter all the time and that is directing uh, our uh, actions instead. I think it's a much more subtle risk and it's not that total takeover. That we seem to be robust enough to withstand that, most of us. There's some people might fall for it and we might want to figure out better ways of helping them. But I do think that we are getting powerful systems integrated here and I think they are going to fulfill a lot of desires. But when we're getting good at fulfilling desires, we tend to get obesity and uh, an obsession with Facebook lives. We're not good at finding the right level of fulfillment. At the same time, we're also aware of this to some extent. So that what would happen to somebody who got everything he ever wanted? That's actually Austin, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And the answer by Willy Wonka is he, of course, lived happily ever after, <laughs> which is an interesting take mm -hmm. on it. Because actually, if you really get what you want, you want the ever after too. The thing is, however, that's rather hard to program. That's not what we're going to be easily getting out of this technology. We have to make it ourselves or find ways of evolving systems that can generate that through some form of value alignment. That's a super hard problem on so. So I do think it's not going to be a disaster, but it's also not really going to be as good as the advertisements are saying. Massimo, are there ways around it or, or why was Rousseau right? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the problems here is that I don't think we are 
good enough uh, typically at sort of using things in the right balance. You know, temperance is, is always an ideal for human beings and it's rarely achieved. And moreover, we're dealing with companies who have a vested interest who, and they have demonstrated this interest in the last several years in actually getting us addicted to, these, to whatever product, whatever technology they're putting forth. So uh, that, I think, is the problem. It's not the technology itself. Of course, there are very good things about virtual reality, uh, even at these early stages, right? It's great to have the ability to have a meeting with colleagues on the other side of the world, for instance, for you know, an hour or two, uh, if you cannot travel on, on to the other side of the world. There's no question that there are advantages. The question really becomes when the technology becomes totalizing, and I don't believe for a second that these companies don't want us for that technology to become totalizing. That is exactly what they want. That is exactly why... Uh, as I said a minute ago, technology, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake to think of technology as neutral. Uh, it is built in a certain way, and in this, particular, in this particular case, I don't believe for a second when the Zuckerbergers of the world tell me that they will build it in an com- inclusive way that, that uh, will invite a lot of different parties to the, to the um, uh, conversation. They, they won't. They haven't, and, and I don't see any reason to think that they will. Can I press a bit harder here, and that this is for everyone, like, is it, is it because of the bad intentions of those companies, or is it because there's something inherently problematic about the technology? You seem to be suggesting both. Do yes, you, do that's right. I think there is both, but the, what is problematic in the technology is the result of the intentions of the company, right? So right. The, the, somebody builds a technology in a certain way for certain reasons. Right. They're not, as I said, technologies are not neutral. And so, of course, the intention of the builders of the technology then translates to some extent into the bias or the the characteristics of the technology. So could we, an interesting question might be, you know, Mm. is there a way to build a virtual reality technology that doesn't have that kind of bias, Mm. that has different kind of biases? Possibly, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't see who's going to do it, mm-hmm. given the incentives. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. possible. Yeah. But you could um, imagine yeah. maybe a non-profit organization holding a, as a thought experiment a non-profit running the metaverse. Yeah. That still raises interesting questions mm-hmm. about the kind of power it gets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Masrita, thoughts? Yeah. So I'm I'm not so convinced that you can have completely neutral versions of these technologies without there being some real existential trade-offs. So. This point about sort of disconnecting sensory experience from sort of bodily consequences, you can think about that, that we already sort of live in this world, which is kind of low stakes and not risky in lots of ways compared to historical standards. And of course, we don't want, you know, lack of safety and risk. But at the same time, you can ask, is the very appeal of virtual reality that you can go into this place where there is sort of amazing experiences which are completely out of the ordinary and interesting that people are seeking sort of unsafe thrill-seeking experiences so is there this hunger there for a more visceral connection with reality with the reality that pushes back and can be nasty and surprising to us and is that the trade-off that we've already gone into with the very technologically mediated life that we already have? Mm. Because, you know, by historical standards, you know, teleport someone from the past to the world we live in today, it already seems like a luxury pleasure dome. Like, think of this festival this yeah. weekend. Like, people <laughs> right. would be amazed. Like, why would you want a virtual reality? Look at what you have now. But somehow we're bored with it and uninterested and want more. Mm. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Um, so let's let's move on to theme three, which is not far from from what we are um, discussing now, 
um, it, it still has to do with like the consequences uh, that it has. So theme three is how will virtual reality change our lives and will a future come where we are largely living in virtual reality? And Massimo? I'm, it might come. I hope not. Uh, because I, I would think that that would be a nightmare. I mean, has anybody here not seen The Matrix? Uh, the, does not here anybody remember the question of the blue pill and the red pill? Uh, that question and that, that movie were actually inspired by, you know, cent literally centuries of thought experiments in, in philosophy. And uh, one of the most influential philosophers of the latter part of the 20th century, uh, Nozick, uh, actually famously came up with this notion of the, this, this thought experiment or the pleasure machine, uh, asking, you know, what would, if you were given the opportunity to walk into a machine that basically creates an artificial reality for the rest of your life, so you're committed at this point, and you won't remember anything about your previous life, and everything will be looking exactly as real, would you do it? And he uh, proposed a number of arguments that suggest that no, people wouldn't do it, or at least they shouldn't do it. Now, that is a major difference, right? Will people do it? Should people do it? I think that Noz uh, the problem with Nozick's experiment is that I think he underestimated or overestimated, depending on which way you look at it, what people will do. Uh, I think he made a very good argument that people shouldn't do it because there, we have, uh, there, because there are some human values that would be dramatically affected or overturned. For instance, I hope that everybody here values truth. And if you value truth, then you wouldn't walk into the pleasure machine because the pleasure machine will allow you to be somebody who you couldn't possibly be in real life. It would invent a whole thing that is simply not true. Yeah, you, be, you may become, you know, uh, you win the World Cup uh, in, in, uh, in football, real football, not the American <laughs> version. And, um, and that would feel great, except that, that it's not true. It's just not, you know, it's, it's a fake thing. And if you value truth, then you shouldn't want to do that sort of stuff. Now, uh, however, I think that Nozick underestimated human psychology. I think that a lot of people actually would, would just walk straight through it uh, mm. without really thinking much about the long-term consequences for their psyche, for, their, for uh, the meaning of their life, in fact. I see, yeah. That, that's, a, that's interesting. I guess that's one of the, of the cases where what one wants is also a matter of moral education, right? But, but also that links to an underlying philosophical problem that we haven't really touched on. And, and I, I remember earlier when you were talking, Anders, like um, you said, you said something like, you know, people will want, it will make them happy, right? Something like that. Like, have, do you have any, any thoughts about, or any, any second guessing or doubts about whether that's good happiness, that's the good mm. way of being happy? Well, quite often you distinguish between hedonic and eudaimonic yes. happiness in philosophy. It's an ancient, ancient discussion about the nuances. But basically, hedonic happiness is that sensory experience from the lobster fermidor of those good sensual experiences. While uh, the eudaimonic happiness is when you're stretching your resources to the utmost to achieve something that is meaningful. And ideally, we want both. It would be rather horrifying to live a totally meaningful life, but it's not a fun one. We want to reward people doing meaningful things with fun. But just living in a fun life, okay, that's rather empty. But the tricky thing is, of course, that uh, truth issue, for example. Quite often we say, yeah, truthfulness is part of meaning. But what if I win the World Cup of football in virtual reality? And everybody else in mankind agree. The World Football of uh, the, 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 the Cup happens in virtual reality, and Anders won it. 
in some sense, I think we can agree. Then it's true that I actually did win that football tournament. Although it would, you might argue, of course, actually it has to be a real football in a real physical world rather than the, that virtual thing. Uh, I do think the forms of meaning we can build in different forms of realities can be some, somewhat different. But typically meaning carries between realities. When I do a calculation on my pocket calculator, the process going on on that one is very different from what would be going on in my head if I did the calculation. But hopefully they produce the same number and I cannot use... The, the fact that there's an isomorphism between the, what I see on the screen coming from the electronics and my, my own mind and hopefully some maybe some mathematical world which may or may not exist. Similarly, there are some forms of meaning that carry over. The fact that I killed a dragon in a particular game, yeah, it's kind of fun in the game, but nobody else cares. No, everybody hates us role-playing game uh, geeks when we're talking about past characters and uh, past the role-playing games. However, some stories might carry over and become good fantasy stories. I think there's some forms of meaning that we want to carry between them. Mm. Rita, thoughts? Like, do you think that if, if VR came to fruition, mm -hmm. w what's the nature of the unfortunate state of affairs that that would mm -hmm. uh, bring about? Yeah. So I, I think we should also think about, you know, the class dynamics around this and how it's going to slot into society as we know it already. Um, so unless there is complete mechanization of all of the work that needs to be done to keep human beings alive something about agriculture and just mm. infrastructure that is there for us as bodily creatures that we need to be um all of that work and production that needs to be done if if that future scenario doesn't happen where machines just do that all then it's not going to be that everybody in the world can spend most of their time in the metaverse mm. enjoying these lovely experiences. There's going to have to be a class of people that are out there in grubby physical reality doing that hard work. Um, and there's a essayist who goes by the pen name N.S. Lyons who's written about the trend already in society, the division between what he calls the physicals and the virtuals. So the physicals were basically the essential workers during the pandemic, the people that actually had to go out, do stuff to keep everyone else going. The virtuals were the laptop class. So already you have that class divide and you can see the possibilities of the metaverse really intensifying that. Yeah. It's funny how that class divide right. always somehow sneaks yeah. in. Uh, now, But it's an interesting class mm -hmm. because it's, it's a slightly different one. Doctors were essential workers. Mm. Very traditional regard as high class. Right. Uh, while plumbers are traditional regard yeah. as a low class. Both are kind of essential yeah. physical ones. Yeah. While there is a lot of low class and high class virtual right. work too. Yeah. So we're mm. slicing the classes yeah. in different that's directions. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's different. That's interesting. Well, that's still because there is, we don't live in a virtual world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's because, therefore, doctors actually have to see patients mm. physically yeah. do things mm -hmm. with patients. right? But if you were living in a completely virtual mm. world that would be a completely yeah. different mm. situation yeah. wouldn't it? because also, i mean I, i'm sorry but i need to push back about <laughs> against your notion of m meaning in a virtual reality i think that essentially is a hedonist life not not a eudaimonic one i i really don't see i mean you, you of course it is it helps your argument that you want to see a translation of meanings between between uh, uh worlds but i don't see how that would actually work i mean uh, winning the World Cup again in virtual reality is not meaningful because I haven't made any effort in it. It's, it's entirely well, artificial. The, the, the people who are doing e-games, I would say they are doing a meaningful a competitive activity even though it's virtual avatars shooting at each other. Yes, but it's not football. 
right? It's something completely <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you think football must have a physical football? That's the definition yeah. of football. Yeah. If so you actually do it with a yeah. virtual ball, it's yeah. not football. It's something yeah. else. Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, we're talking about back to Chalmers, right? Mm -hmm. One of the classic arguments against uh, uh, Chalmers' notion of uh, uh, computer uploading and, and virtual realities and all that sort of stuff is that, or his, his view of consciousness, is that, uh, yeah, you can simulate uh, physical processes in a lot of detail. For instance, you can simulate photosynthesis mm. bit by bit, even at the quantum level. And the only thing you don't get out of a simulated photosynthesis is sugar, mm. which is the only thing that matters. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, and without sugar, and you don't I grow plants. I would be pushing back against this and say, you get simulated sugar, which is real within that simulator. It's a bit like saying a simulated <laughs> hurricane yeah. doesn't make anybody wet. Well, simulated persons inside that simulation would get wet. but No, they won't. Yeah. You're, 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 you're using, I mean, the interesting <laughs> thing to me is, uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but no, you won't. You're using the same word, wet. Yeah, well, it should be to simulated mean something, wet. Right, but to mean something that is not even comparable, it's something totally different. Simulated mm -hmm. wetness has nothing to do with actual wetness. Yeah. But, but the problem is, of course, we're already living in a simulated world. This world, the classic environment, us, is made up of weird quantum mechanics stuff. But we're not observing that. We're see, living in the classical wor uh, world. Uh, to us, there is wetness, but there's actually just wave mm -hmm. functions moving that's, in a Hilbert yeah. space. That's in an that issue but, level but, description. But just, yes. I mean, just to go back to the original dispute between the two of you, it was about the skill set and that question of eudaimonia. Um, yes. It's about what skills you're using, and it's not yes. football skills. Mm, it's correct different mm. set of skills which allow you to play really well in a computer game well, but it's still if we assume skills, it's a yeah. good physical virtual reality I assume mm. you need to be a good footballer at which uh -huh. point of course I need to drop out of that uh, competition in the first place that's an important point so if the virtual reality world begins to map the real world really that closely then you might as well stay in the physical one what, what mm. is the advantage of you can edit the virtual one easy, more easily but, but, but no, hold on a second, <laughs> hear me out here. If, if you really are going to merge right. the two to the point where, you, your point mm. was excellent, to the point where virtual football mm. requires the same skills as real mm. football, then I'm going to suck at that just as I <laughs> suck yeah. in the world. Right. I might as well not log in. Yeah. Right? What, what, yeah. what is the difference? Yeah. You're kind of taking away the advantage of the virtual world. Well, that was an interesting debate. Yeah, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe in your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.